And turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We started a few weeks ago looking at uh, verses 31 and 32. And then uh, I went on vacation. And so it's been broken up in our study. So I'm not going to review everything that I taught before, but I will go over a little bit just to tie it in with where we're headed. Uh, reading verses 31 and 32, Jesus is speaking. He says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as I said before, many people are confused about what the Bible has to teach on the issue of marriage and divorce. And my hope is that when we're done with our study, you won't be confused anymore. Uh, one reason is that there are four basic interpretations of what the Bible teaches on divorce and remarriage, and all four are found in various Christian circles. Uh, so let me give you those four options. First, some people teach that divorce and remarriage are not permissible for any reason or circumstance. That's the strictest view. Second, other people teach that divorce is permissible under certain circumstances, but never remarriage. At no time, no way, never for anything. Third, others teach that divorce and remarriage are permissible anytime for any reason whatsoever, or for that matter, no reason at all. It's just okay. And the fourth view says that divorce and remarriage are both permissible under certain limited circumstances. Now, a question we want to ask and find the answer to is which view is biblical? All of the proponents of each view will claim that their view is biblical. But we need to put the issue to the test of the Word of God and see which one holds up. Now, in trying to discover what the Bible really says, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees were in Matthew 5, 31. They had developed an erroneous view of divorce and remarriage, and Jesus confronts them with their error and sets the record straight. The Pharisees had decided that you ought to be able to dump your wife whenever you wanted to, for whatever reason you wanted to, and so you ought to be able to get a divorce whenever you got the whim and the will to do it. Uh, so they twisted the scripture to fit that view. And in verse 31, Jesus presents their view. And then in verse 32, he gives his view. And he says, it was said, but I say to you. He's correcting their traditional misinterpretation. You see, marriage as God designed it is to be the perfect welding of two people together into one. Uh, it's a commitment of two wills, the blending of two minds. It's the mutual expression of two sets of God-given emotions so that the two become one. And so when God brings a man and a woman together, it's to be in a permanent relationship. That's why Matthew 19, 6 says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So then since marriage is an institution of God, any marriage is, in that sense, a joining of two people by God. So that means any marriage is by default against God's law when divorce enters in. You see, God never intended for divorce. God considered marriage to be so sacred that any violation of that marriage union was so serious 
that the penalty for it was death. Uh, in fact, God had such a high view of marriage that in the last of the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And that tells us that even for a married person to desire another partner was so evil that it was one of the ten major sins. So the first truth, the first reality that we must be committed to is the uniqueness and permanence of marriage. Two becoming one for life, never violating that oneness in thought or in deed. Uh, however, all of us know and all of us have experienced, well, I should say all of us who have been married have experienced that the marital conflict exists all around us. Uh, and what has it throughout history led to? Divorce. Uh, and so naturally Moses comes along and he says, because of the hardness of your hearts, uh, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses faced the fact that divorce was a reality and he permitted divorce with a certificate of divorce. Doesn't change God's view, doesn't change how God feels. It's part of the curse, it's part of sin. God hates the curse and God hates sin, God hates divorce. It's a symptom of man's vile sinfulness. It hurts and does irreparable damage to everyone involved. But most of all, it goes against God who never designed divorce to be a part of human life. So we began before by looking at the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Look again at verse 31. It says, whoever sends his it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, you make sure that when you divorce your wife, you get the legal paperwork done. I'm telling you, you shouldn't even divorce your wife. That's the point. See, there were two different schools of rabbinical thought about divorce and one the one that was dominant in Jesus time was the one that says you could divorce your wife for any reason and when you did that their view was just be sure you get the paperwork right and that was their view make sure you write her a certificate of divorce you see they were just trying to make they, sure they complied with the legal requirement that they thought was taught in Deuteronomy 24 and we looked last time at Deuteronomy 24 1-4 where Moses mentions the certificate of divorce and what he was doing there and Jesus mentions it in Matthew 19 is we what we learned is that the passage the focus of that passage is not the question of whether or not divorce is permitted rather it is a statement of a very very narrow specific law that was given to deal with the matter of adultery he shows how improper divorce leads to adultery, which results in defilement. And through Moses, God recognized and permitted divorce under certain circumstances when it was accompanied by a certificate, but he did not thereby condone or command divorce. God's permission for divorce was but another accommodation of his grace to human sin. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, so the Pharisees ask him, why then does Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus' reply to them was, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. In other words, it was not a command. It was simply permission based on the hardness 
of your sinful hearts. That's a big difference. Nowhere in Scripture does God command anyone to get a divorce. There has had to be some legal process because marriage was a legal contract. And so when men were dumping their wives and becoming adulterous, when the innocent wife was just turned loose, they could make no claim for anything. No one would know what the circumstances were. They would not be able to explain their situation. And so to ease that and regulate future behavior, there was a certificate of divorce. It was a testimonial to the woman of her freedom from the marital obligation to the husband who divorced her. In the bill of divorcement was a statement that the woman was set free by the man so that she would not be accused of being a prostitute or she wouldn't be accused of having forsaken her home or have run away from her husband. The certificate of divorce was evidence for a potential new husband of her legal freedom to remarry. Now, as far as God was concerned, such a certificate of divorce was only legitimate in one case, and that was in the case of adultery. Moses gives an illustration in verse in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, of an illustration to point out the evil of divorce. He's not trying to provide for it. He's trying to prevent it. What Moses is trying to say is don't marry someone who's been defiled by adultery. He's not advocating divorce. What he's doing is that, what he says is that there's only one basic ground for divorce, and that is adultery. And if a man turns a woman loose for anything less than that, any other kind of uncleanness in his own eyes, he's going to create an adulterous situation. Now, when you go back, when we go to Matthew 5, we find that what Jesus says is a re-echoing of what Moses said. And this is where we pick up where we left off last time with what Jesus teaches. Look at what he says there in the verse, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever divorces a divorced marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, if you get a divorce on the wrong reasons, you will add adultery to the sin of divorce. Don't overlook the fact that what Jesus says here ties back to what he taught in verses 27 to 30. The scribes and Pharisees said, well, we don't commit adultery. Jesus says, first of all, yes, you do. You, you commit it in your heart. And secondly, you're proliferating adultery all over the place by divorcing your wives indiscriminately. Every time you divorce your wife, you force her into adultery if she remarries, as it is assumed she would. And so you are guilty of adultery, and whoever marries her is guilty of adultery, and whoever marries you is guilty of adultery. You've got adultery all over the place. So that's the thrust of the passage. The whole section is to reveal that they are they are adulterers in spite of what they claim. And Jesus is ripping the mask off of their self-righteousness to reveal their real hearts. And the whole point here is that divorce leads to adultery. It's sequential. That's what he's saying. You may claim that you're not an adulterers, but you are adulterers in your heart and in your divorces, which you're doing by misinterpreting the word of God to fit your own whims. Now, let's look specifically at what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces 
his wife. Now this is talking about everyone. It doesn't matter who they are. There's no one who gets a special pass on this. It includes everyone who divorces his wife. Now I think the word divorces is very clear. But there are some people who've come along and said, oh no, this, this only refers to a separation. They say that because, as I told you before, the, uh, the word means to release, to let go, to send away. But despite the fact that the word was commonly used to mean divorce, they don't want to see it that way. They only want to see it as a separation. Other people want to see it as a broken engagement. Uh, there's a lot of talk of this uh, referring to the betrothal period and not to a real marriage. Uh, but the term means to divorce. It was used that way all throughout the Gospels. It was used that way in extra-biblical literature, other places other than Scripture. That is the most common meaning of the word when it is used in a husband-wife context. It means divorce. It isn't just a separation. It isn't just a broken betrothal or a broken engagement. The term and the context clearly show that this is the disillusion of a marriage, that a divorce is in view, that you have a real marriage here. What is interesting to me is that as you look at the various passages in the Gospels where this word is used, sometimes the scribes and Pharisees used it, sometimes Jesus used it, and there was never a discussion about what either one of them meant. They knew what it meant. They didn't have to discuss whether or not they were talking about a separation or a broken engagement or a legitimate divorce or anything because its common meaning was divorce. By the way, every Greek lexicon that you will find will tell you that the word means divorce. So you can't make this refer to a broken engagement for several reasons. First, when the Jews used this word, they didn't have the engagement period in mind. That wasn't their normal use of the word. Further, the background of this passage is what Old Testament passage? Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 is the background of this whole text. And Deuteronomy 24 is not dealing with broken engagements, it's dealing with divorce. And so to take that engagement concept and impose it upon a passage that's dealing strictly with marriage and divorce on the basis of its Old Testament roots is really to add something that doesn't belong there. Deuteronomy 24 is not concerned with engagement periods. Further, if Christ had in mind the engagement period, then he would be adding something to the Old Testament standard rather than commenting on it and affirming it. And if that's what he's doing, it's the only time he does it throughout the whole section of the Sermon on the Mount, which makes it consistent with inconsistent with everything he had in mind. Although he's doing, all he's doing in this part of the Sermon on the Mount is reiterating to them what the Old Testament taught all along. He is reaffirming God's standard, which hasn't changed. He's not adding to it. But if this was a section on engagement, since Deuteronomy 24 doesn't deal with it, we'd have to say that he's adding something new, which wasn't his purpose at all, but rather affirming what God's law has always been. So the introduction of the breakup of an engagement is totally foreign to the text. 
It's totally foreign to the context of Matthew. It's foreign to the debate with the Jews. It's totally foreign to Deuteronomy 24. It has no relationship to the consequences either. If a person broke an engagement and went on and got married, they didn't become an adulterer. So why would it be adultery to break an engagement and go back and marry somebody else? It wouldn't. It's talking about a consummated marriage. That is clear. So those who say it means a separation or it means only some kind of broken engagement are people who don't want to allow for divorce in the Bible at all, who don't want it to allow for it under any conditions for a divorce at any time. So they just remove divorce from the passage, but in doing so, they do injustice to the text. Now, going back to verse 32, the next thing Jesus says, by the way, let me just interrupt myself here and say that after months of having to do Zoom at the same time, uh, you're sort of tied to keep talking all the time <laughs> for them. But we're back with no Zoom now. So if you have a question, feel free to stick your hand in the air and we'll go from there. Okay? Like we used to do it before Zoom. So let's look at the rest of verse 32. The next thing Jesus says is that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Jesus says, you say you're not adulterers, but I'm telling you that you're not only... The, adulterers, but you're making other people adulterers. How? By divorcing. Why? Because remarriage is assumed to be inevitable. And when people have no right to a divorce, for a divorce, and they enter into another union, they consummate an adulterous relationship. You see, he, he assumes the remarriage. It's inevitable, and that's the basic teaching. In Mark 10:11, the parallel text, it says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So you not only make your wife an adulterer, but when you remarry, which is again assumed to be inevitable, you become an adulterer. And verse 12, if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she's committing adultery. So it's the same thing. The Lord is saying divorce leads to adultery. In Luke 16, 18, Jesus said, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, those passages don't even have any exception clauses in them. They don't even have an except for the cause of in there. They just lay it out flat, point blank, that when you get a divorce or you divorce someone, you cause adultery all over the place. Divorce then leads everybody into sin. It's precisely what Deuteronomy was saying. Divorce leads to adultery because remarriage is inevitable. So the sin of adultery has become added to the sin of divorce. And that's really the sum of the whole passage. Now, look at the end of verse 32. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's just adding another dimension. No matter how you cut it, it all comes out the same. Now, look with me for a minute at Matthew 19. Let's look over at Matthew 19, beginning at verse 3. I told you when we started this study that we couldn't just look at Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and get a complete picture. We've got to look at other passages. In Matthew 19, Matthew 19 verse 3, 
says, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? See, that's how they interpreted De Deuteronomy 24. That's the way they handled it. They're going to obviously, they, they were going to obviously try to draw him into the long-standing debate among their rabbis about the meaning, so they wanted to trap him. They wanted him to get on his little soapbox and start blasting away at divorce. You want to know why? Because that's how John the Baptist lost his head. And they figured, we'll get him into the same corner. John the Baptist was thrown into prison, you remember, for speaking against the adulterous relationship between Herodias and Herod Antipas. And they thought, boy, if we can get Jesus in here to talk about adultery and divorce, and then they'll really go after him when he starts talking about all these people that have done that, and we'll get him just like we got John the Baptist. And so they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Figuring that on, that on the basis of what they knew, of what he had said earlier, which is recorded in Matthew 5, that he would condemn it. So Jesus answers in the typical manner of a Jewish rabbi. By doing what? Asking him a question. <laughs> Verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? In other words, don't you know what the Scripture teaches? Verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All he did was quote Genesis 2. He says, don't you ever read Genesis 2? So they said to him in verse 7, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? You see, they're still hung up on the fact that they thought Deuteronomy 24 was a command. So, verse 8, he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And what the Lord is saying here is that divorce leads to adultery. Well, the disciples got the message. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. They're saying, if you're stuck and it's that bad, forget it. If it's that indissolvable, that one flesh is never going to be put asunder. If divorce is only a concession to an evil sinful society, and it's only permissible if she's adulterous. But other than that, the marriage is permanent. It's better not to get married because you might make a mistake and then you're stuck. So he said to them, verse 11, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. In other words, that's fine. You could say it's better not to marry, but not everyone can handle being single. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. In other words, 
There are people who, for varying reasons, can handle singleness, but not everyone can handle it. And the point that the Lord is making is just know when you go into marriage that you're going in on the right terms with a commitment to stay there because divorce proliferates adultery. So whenever there's a divorce, Jesus says there's going to be adultery all over the place on the part of everyone involved because remarriage will be inevitable. And with no legitimate grounds for divorce to start with, a remarriage is adultery, except in one situation. And now we go back to Matthew 5. This is the clause found there in the middle of verse 12. Except for the reason of unchastity. Now listen, that same clause is in Matthew 19.9 that we just read. And there are people who come along and say, but it's not in Mark and it's not in Luke. That's true. But tell me something. How many times does God have to say something to make it true? Jesus didn't say the exact same thing every time he talked about divorce. When my kids were young and I told them uh, why they couldn't do something, I may have had to repeat myself several times, but I didn't always say the exact same words every time. Listen, every time God talks about divorce, he doesn't have to say everything there is to say about the subject. You know, what he says in Luke are some things that he didn't say in Mark. And what he says in Mark are some things he didn't say in Matthew. Whether you are dealing with the passages on divorce in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, or Luke 16, every one of them deal with features of divorce and remarriage that the others do not all deal with. In each of these, there are some specifics that aren't in the others. Why? Because each writer has a specific plan. The Spirit of God is accomplishing a specific purpose in the context of the passage. Do not force God to say everything on every subject every time he brings it up. You see, the exception clause isn't the major issue. God is not making a great announcement. You can get a divorce for adultery. His announcement is divorce creates adultery, except, of course, for the reason of adultery. That's just sort of a concession. It's unreasonable for people to assume that because the Lord didn't say it everywhere, he didn't mean it. Listen, if he said it once, he meant it, right? He meant it. Now, the word unchastity is this word, porneia, from which we get our words pornography and pornographic. It is often translated in Scripture as immorality. Uh, the word simply means every kind of unlawful sexual intercourse. That's what it means, every kind. I don't care whether you're talking about sex between unmarried people, married people, homosexuals, incest, prostitution, or whatever it is. This is a broad word that lumps every kind of illicit, immoral sex together. Now, in this context, it clearly has adultery in mind because the whole passage is about marriage. People say, well, then... Why didn't Jesus use porneia rather than a specific word meaning adultery? Simply because porneia is a bigger word. It's a broad term that encompasses everything. And I think the, the reason he uses it is because a divorce is not only technically allowable when your partner has a sexual relationship with someone else of the opposite sex, 
but a divorce is technically allowable when your husband or wife has any kind of immoral sexual relationship with another man, a woman, a child, an animal, whatever. Because all of those things in the Old Testament brought the death penalty. You can read about them all in Leviticus 20. They all constitute a sum of the violation. For example, in Numbers 25, we are told that 24,000 men of Israel committed sexual sin with the daughters of Moab and God ordered their execution and then carried it out with some kind of plague. Some were married, some were single. So rather than specify adultery or fornication, the text just says they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. When Paul refers to that incident in 1 Corinthians 10.8, he says there they acted immorally, and he uses the verb form of this noun, porneia. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul uses the word to refer to an incestuous sexual relationship between a man and his stepmother. So it is a comprehensive term referring to all manner of sexual sin. And according to Leviticus 20, it should result in death. But if death is not mandatory in the society or the culture for that sin, then divorce is the option. Why? Well, one reason is because God allows divorce as a concession to the evil of man. He does not demand that a spouse have to continue to endure the, the pain of remaining married to an unfaithful mate. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was never his original plan. A, a better plan would be to forgive and redeem the partner. But there are times when that partner will not be redeemed. When that partner continues to be unfaithful with prolonged, unrepentant sexual sin. It's not a one-time moral failure. It's a pattern of behavior. And in those cases, if the innocent party can't do anything about it, then in God's grace and in his mercy, where there is a marriage of two people and one of those partners continues in an adulterous, evil, sexual sin and will not return and repent and make it right. He allows by his grace for that innocent partner to be free from the bondage of that vile person. And the freedom from that bondage is the freedom to remarry. Jesus never advocates divorce. He only admits there are times when it is permissible. He hates it all the time. And there are times when it doesn't lead to adultery. There are times when you're the victim of adultery in your marriage and the innocent uh, party in a divorce and you've tried every way you can to reconcile, every way you can to redeem and forgive and put it together and it just doesn't happen. And in those cases, you are then considered free to remarry and it will not be considered adultery. Why not? Well, originally, adultery was punishable by what? Death. Death. That certainly permanently dissolves a marriage, doesn't it? <laughs> Death does away with a marriage. Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7 are both clear on that issue. When a spouse dies, the marriage is ended and the living spouse is free to remarry. Now, at the time Jesus was here, the Jews did not have the power to put anyone to death for adultery. The Romans had removed the authority to execute anyone from them, so they couldn't take the life of an adulteress or an adulterer in their time. So they had an alternative, and that was divorce. So divorce took the place of the death penalty for the adulterer. 
See, if we lived in Old Testament times, the adulterous spouse would be executed, stoned to death, and because he was dead, his wife would be free to remarry without it being adultery. And we find that in Matthew 1.19, in the case of Joseph and Mary. At a time when death would not be the consequence of adultery, Joseph had a chance, a, a choice to put Mary away privately, which means to divorce her. A woman was considered a man's wife during the betrothal period, even though the final marriage had not taken place. So he would have had to divorce her for her supposed unchastity during that time. And that would have been permissible for Joseph if Mary had been guilty of sexual immorality. So in applying this principle today, also a time when no one is executed for adultery, divorce takes the place of execution and the death of the adulterous spouse, and thus the bonds of marriage are permanently broken and the innocent spouse is free to remarry. Jesus said divorce is permissible for unchastity and thus remarriage is assumed for that exception. So Jesus sets the record straight. God still hates divorce. His ideal is still monogamous, lifelong marriage and divorce only brings adultery apart from the reason of unchastity by one of the partners. Now I can't wrap this up without looking at what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 7. So you can look there. This is an example of what we refer to as progressive revelation, meaning that as the Holy Spirit spoke the word of God through his prophets and apostles, there was a progression in that revelation. We see this particularly with the Old Testament continually pointing to the coming Messiah. When we get to the New Testament, the Messiah is finally revealed to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he proclaims a gospel of repentance and faith, but we don't get the fullness of that gospel until we get to the epistles, particularly Romans. In the same way, the Old Testament taught on divorce, and Jesus clarified it for the Jews and us, but now Paul gives additional understanding and revelation about it. Beginning in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Paul is saying, I'm telling those of you who are married that you should stay together. And this isn't my instruction. This comes from the Lord. This is what he said in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16. The Lord told us this, no divorce. Now, verse 11. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. If something happens in a marriage other than adultery and you leave, you have two options. You can stay single the rest of your life or you can be reunited to your husband. Those are the only two options you have. You say, I mean, if I had a divorce for less than biblical grounds, but not on, not on the basis of adultery, I either have to go back to him or stay single the rest of my life. I didn't say that. That's what 1 Corinthians 7, 11 says. Now you say, well, that happened before I was a Christian. Yeah, I realize that such things take place in the lives of people before they come to faith in Christ. I would expect that. But now that you're a Christian, you have to live in the light of 1 Corinthians 7, 11, just like you do with the rest of Scripture. Verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever 
and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. He begins by saying, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. In other words, I've said as much as the Lord said. The Lord said there was no divorce for anything less than adulterous grounds. That's, that's what Paul is saying. And if you just decided to depart, you can either stay single the rest of your life. You can't remarry at all. That would constitute adultery if you did. And he's just reiterating Matthew 5.32 and Deuteronomy 24.1-4. There's no divorce apart from sexual immorality that doesn't lead to adultery if you remarry. So Paul says, but I want to add something to this that the Lord didn't cover. It doesn't mean that it's not inspired. It just means the Lord didn't talk about it. It's just as inspired because this is what the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul. Remember, at the time Jesus taught on this issue, there was no such thing as a Christian married to an unbeliever. So naturally, he wouldn't address it. So here's the question. What if a brother has a, <clears throat> has a wife who's an unbeliever? You became a Christian, but your wife didn't. But she's willing to continue to live with you. What should I do? Should I divorce her since she isn't a Christian? Paul's answer is no. Stay with her. Don't divorce her. Apparently, some of them were thinking like this. You know, I'm a Christian now. My wife is unsafe, so we're unequally yoked together. So can I dump this one and marry a Christian wife? And Paul's answer is no. Stay with her. Don't divorce her. Verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So the same thing applies to wives who have unbelieving husbands. You need to stay married to him. Why? Verse 14. <clears throat> For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. In other words, your presence in that family is going to be a sanctifying influence. The best thing you can do for your unsaved husband and your children that are going to come through that marriage is to stay there and be God's representative in that family. Paul is dealing precisely with the issue that I mentioned. An unsaved person is married to their uh, unsaved spouse and then one of them becomes, comes to Christ. Now they've got an unsaved partner and the first thing they want to do is shed them and get a Christian mate. No, the partner is sanctified by your presence. It doesn't mean redeemed. It just means the pervasiveness of God's presence is going to be a benefit in their life. You say, well, what if my unbelieving partner wants out? That's verse 15. Look at this. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The Greek word Paul uses, which is translated leave here, is a technical term for divorce. He's saying, if your unbelieving spouse decides to divorce you, let him do it. Don't fight him over it. Let him go. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to be easy. I'm just saying that Paul says you don't need to fight to stay, marriage, to, to stay married to an unbeliever who wants out of the marriage. In fact, you shouldn't fight him. You only need to have an attorney to work out the dissolution of the property you own jointly, but don't fight to maintain the marriage. You're concerned about such issues. If you're concerned about such issues as what will I do for financial support? He works. I'm only a homemaker. I don't have any skills. Let me just say, first of all, don't sell yourself short. You gained a lot of skills as a homemaker are far more marketable than you may realize. And secondly, trust the Lord. He's promised to care for his children. 
So if your unbelieving spouse abandons and divorces you, don't fight him or her. Let them leave. That's not me saying that. That's the word of God saying that. Now look at the rest of verse 15. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now the word bondage was a word used of a slave being in subjection to his master. So Paul is saying that you're no longer bound. You are free, just like a slave could be set from enslavement to a master. It's talking about the complete breaking of the marriage bond. In God's eyes, the marriage bonds have been irrevocably broken, and the believer is no longer bound in any way to that individual. It is just as if the unbeliever was dead. So if an unbeliever leaves and divorces a believer, the believer is not to fight the divorce, and the believer is no longer bound to the individual. The oneness that was there before that has been broken, just as if the spouse had died. It's a complete freeing of the relationship. Why? Because God has called us to peace. God doesn't want you to try to hang on to someone who hates everything that you believe in. That would not be peaceful. So my understanding of that passage is that in such a circumstance, the believing spouse would be free to remarry. So then to summarize, in God's sight, the bond between a husband and wife is dissolved only by death, adultery, or when an unbeliever leaves and divorces a believer. When the bond or bondage is broken in any of those ways, a Christian is free to remarry. Throughout Scripture, whenever legitimate divorce occurs, remarriage is assumed. Where divorce is permitted, remarriage is assumed. But when a divorce takes place for a reason other than sexual immorality or abandonment by an unbeliever, remarriage is not permitted. Now remember, Paul is not presenting conditions under which divorce is possible because the ideal is that a believer should not divorce at all. He's just saying that it may happen that an unbelieving spouse dumps you because he can't stand what you believe in. He's not saying that if you've got an unbelieving husband and you see someone that you like better, do everything you can to get rid of the unbeliever so that you can marry the believer. No, in that case, what you've done is kept a letter of the law like a Pharisee. You forced him to divorce you, but you've broken the law that is the ideal that God wants in your heart. And in God's eyes, you've sinned. Now, what about the case in which a professing believer divorces another believer? Can the innocent believer in such cases ever remarry? Well, if the church of which they are members does what it should, then it will carry out church discipline on the spouse who initiated the divorce. If that individual does not repent and be reconciled to his or her spouse, then eventually the church will excommunicate the individual. And according to Matthew 18, 17, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? It means you consider them as though they're an unbeliever. You see, true believers repent of their sin and return and are reconciled. But those who don't give evidence that they aren't true, those who don't give evidence that they aren't true believers. If that occurs, then after a period of time, I would say years, not weeks or months. Years. 
I believe the innocent believer is free to remarry because the spouse who divorced him has given evidence that he or she is an unbeliever. And that situation would then fit into the criteria that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 7.15. That would be particularly true if the sinning spouse went out and remarried someone else. That would prevent any possible reconciliation at that point, so the innocent spouse could then remarry. But the divorced believer needs to be very cautious about his or her attitude in all of this. I've seen many cases in which people in a bad marriage started looking for ways to get out. And when you start playing around with the technicalities, you're going to come out as a modern-day Pharisee who is simply trying to make sure you check all the boxes that will legitimize your divorce, but God looks at your heart. And God knows if you did things that drove that spouse away and created conflict in the marriage so that your unbelieving spouse left you. And God also knows if the, that unbeliever departed, even though you did everything you could to honor the Lord in your marriage and live a sanctified life before them so that you might win him or her to Christ. God knows your heart and you will answer to him for your actions in that marriage. So the scripture is consistent. The believer is not to divorce at all. When Marsh and I got married, we were both committed to the idea that divorce would never enter into our thoughts, words, or actions. Now, I'm not sure, uh, she's probably considered homicide a few times, but never, <laughs> never divorce. <laughs> but if a believer finds themselves to be the victim of adultery or divorce by someone who doesn't want anything to do with Christ, then he or then and only then is he or she free to remarry. Now, please don't take what I've taught and think, well, Bruce is promoting divorce. Not at all. I know of several Christian couples who have suffered the pain of infidelity in their marriages who have not gotten divorced. And yet there was that grievous sin, but there was also genuine repentance on the part of the sinning spouse and forgiveness by the offended spouse. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of biblical counseling involved. There was a lot of pain and hurt to work through with a lot of effort by the sinning spouse to prove that his or her repentance was genuine. Uh, but over time, the Lord worked in both of their hearts to restore those marriages. So you will never hear me or any other elder at this church actually counsel someone to get a divorce simply because they have biblical grounds to do so. Our counsel is to do everything you can before the Lord to forgive and restore the marriage. Only if you believe that it's impossible should you ever divorce. Remember, you're also a sinner. Perhaps you haven't done as a serious sin as violating the covenant marriage relationship, but you're still a vile, rotten sinner who didn't deserve God's grace any more than your spouse deserves it. But God poured his grace out on you, and so you need to pour out grace on your sinning spouse also. That's where Ephesians 4.32 comes in. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. But if you do decide to divorce that sexually immoral spouse, we understand that you have God's permission to do so. Another issue that comes up quite often in our society today has to do with an abusive spouse who physically beats or strikes his or her spouse and her children who are set in, or, or even who has sexually molested children in the home. It's usually the husband, so I'll use that as an example. I've seen cases of wives abusing husbands, but 95% of the time it's the man who is abusive. So if a wife is a believer, is divorce possible? 
Well, let me first say that the wife who is beaten or has children who are being physically or sexually abused needs to call the police immediately and report those crimes to him, to them. God has instituted law enforcement as his means of justice and retribution in our society. Rather than the wife and children leaving their home, for, uh, leaving for their protection, get him removed from the home by the police and the courts. That may involve getting an injunction for protection, but do it. The wife is not being kind and compassionate or Christ-like by showing that criminal to continue to, uh, allowing him to continue to abuse her or the children. I don't care if the husband is a professing believer or not. God does not intend for him to be abusive. That is sin. And God has intended for the police and the courts to be his instruments of justice. In the case of sexual molestation, the wife must do everything in her power to protect her children from that man. Secondly, that wife must get the church pastors involved. And if they're doing their job as they should, they will begin the process of church discipline. That man is in serious sin, and apart from genuine repentance, he must be disciplined. And abusers are notorious for returning to their abusive ways. So it may take a long time for the evidence of genuine repentance to be seen. If he continues to be abusive, there will, may have to be a long-term separation. However, I believe that if he abandons and divorces her and is excommunicated by the church because of his ongoing sinful behavior, then he is giving evidence that he is not a true believer, regardless of what he claims. And as I said before, then she would be free to remarry at some point in the future if she desired to do so. Let me just mention another issue that comes up every so often. That's the ability for a divorced man to serve in ministry, either as an elder or a deacon in the church. Wow, look at my time. Let me just say, I taught on this five years ago, and... Uh, Many interpret this to mean that an elder can never be divorced or remarried. Well, if it was intended to say that, it would be that simple. But Paul has to, would have said the man can never be divorced, but it doesn't say that. Uh, so uh, Paul's point in those passages is, is that not that a man cannot be an elder or deacon because he was previously married, he's now single, or was previously married, divorced, and remarried. That's not the issue. If he wanted to explicitly say that, he could have. Uh, the issue in 1 Timothy 3 is the faithfulness and fidelity to his wife. He has to be wholly devoted to one woman, his wife. There has to be no hint of sexual misconduct or improper relationships with other women. It doesn't mean that a man who was divorced and remarried before he came to faith in Christ and who has grown and become a solid believer can't serve in ministry. Uh, I mean... Think of all the other things that are prohibited in that passage. Being a fighter, an abuse, you know, all kinds of things. There's men who were that before, and we don't say, well, if he did that before, we can't, he can't be an elder. Uh, no, it's no different than any of the others. Um, let me just quickly look, because I'm so close to the end, I don't want to have to. Let me just wrap it up by saying I'm aware there's differing views on divorce and remarriage, what is and what isn't permissible. I've given you what I believe the scriptures teach. There are other sound Bible teachers who disagree on certain points, um, but you need to be convinced in your own heart. Divorce is not God's design. He hates it. You should too. If you find 
yourself in one of the situations I've discussed. I believe it's permissible. If you're considering remarriage, you need to be convinced in your own mind that you're right before God in that manner. I would encourage you to seek the counsel and advice of your pastors before you become so romantically involved with someone that you're no longer willing to listen to them. If they say, no, you don't have a biblical basis to remarry. Um, I've seen that happen many times. Uh, understand these situations are difficult to deal with over the past couple of years. The elders have had to deal with a few of them and they're incredibly difficult to break down and figure out just exactly how they fit into the scriptural requirements and implications. They've taken up many hours of our elder meeting time uh, discussing how to deal with them. I'm still not sure any of us are satisfied we handled them correctly. Uh, but please understand we want to honor the Lord and do what his word tells us to do. And when we have to exercise public discipline in such cases, we're greatly troubled and grieved when we have to do that. Um, in closing, let me just say you're, you may have blown it in a marriage. You may have had multiple marriages. But I'll tell you one thing. Whatever you did in the past is under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you start from there. God can still use you. I tell you this with their permission. Steve and Barb Trum, two of our, one of our biblical counseling couples who are probably the best counselors we have in the area of marriage relationships, were both divorced twice and were on their way to divorce again themselves when God saved them, transformed them, and taught them his word in such a way that they're now able to greatly help those who are in difficulties in their marriages. Why didn't God save them before they had to go through all that grief and sorrow and the lifelong consequences of their divorces that took place when they were still unbelievers? I don't know. I would never try to read the infinite mind of a sovereign God who allowed that. But I do know he's used them tremendously in the lives of many couples. Um, and when I spoke to them, they said, be sure to let you know that they have now just finished celebrating 36 years of marriage together. And they're available for anyone who wants to discuss their marriage situation with them. So that brings us to the end of our study, and our time is way past. So I'm going to stop. Didn't get to say everything I had to say, but uh, I said enough. So any comments or questions before we go? Okay. Frank, would you close us in prayer, please? Our Father and our God, we thank you for...